0: Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. the era following the fall of the Roman Empire tends to be known as the medieval period, or the Middle Ages. More widely, this post-classical period roughly corresponds with the end of the Chinese Han Dynasty, the end of the Indian Gupta Empire, and the end of the Persian Sassanian Empire as well. It saw the rise of Islam, the strengthening of the Catholic Church across Europe, there were wars, most notably the Crusades, and ideas, trade and people continued to move around the Afro-Eurasian world. In this episode, we will address the history of medicine in Europe specifically, and Britain in particular, with a firm eye on the wider context. We're covering a huge swathe of time from around 500 AD to 1500 AD. Let's begin with today's object from sick to death. Dean Patton, you are the head honcho at Sick to Death. What object do you have for us today?
1: a very unusual interesting one this it is a collection of human remains both real and replica the highlight is a set of human remains, a skeleton of a woman we assume to be a nun from the medieval period taken from a priory cemetery in the city. And she has some evidence of malnutrition and some evidence of healed injury on her as well. So it's a great way we can look at, you know, diet and how it affected health, but also we can have a look at what medical practices were and were not maybe being used through human remains that were left behind.
0: That's so interesting. And just obviously, I'm just a historian. I don't know anything about archaeology, which is your realm. How do we know these things? How can we use skeletons to, to find out this, this information?
1: Okay, so archaeology is all about, you know, the the things that people leave behind. And one of the most important things people leave behind is their own bodies. And uh, you know, as we grow up, as we're, as we're born, our, our skeletons, if you like, become a little record of things that happen in our lives so it could be malnutrition maybe you're going for a famine so the bones don't grow or the teeth don't grow as well maybe you break your arm and doesn't heal very well or maybe it heals very well because you've got a good doctor uh, maybe you've had a particularly nasty disease that's eaten away at your bone like bones like syphilis will so when people die human remains remain in the ground and then hundreds maybe thousands of years later they're little time capsules of themselves to be kind of explored and, and we can and we can tell a little bit about that person's health and well-being through their life from from the human remains
0: that's so interesting and i know there's obviously questions about displaying human remains in in public places and things is this a, an artifact that people will be able to see if they come to sick to death
1: yeah, absolutely. There's there's replicas which are on display, but we do have one full set and, and you are right, it's not something that's done lightly and it's done from a, a science perspective, it's not something that should be taken with anything other than respect and, and with kind of scientific investigation in mind and that's how it's displayed at Sick to Death.
0: In terms of responsibility for the sick and ill, people during this time had a number of options.
2: The way that medicine is actually kind of dealt out in the medieval period is a lot different um, to how we kind of think of it now.
0: That's Dr. Eleanor Yarniger, medieval historian, academic, and author of the forthcoming, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History.
2: There are definitely professional people who do professional medicine, but the great, great majority of medical care is actually not professional in any way, shape, or form. And the great majority of people who are doing medicine are actually just women. So uh, for most people, uh, medicine is something that you get from your mum, or your wife or uh, even you if you're the woman who happens to be the head of the household. So this is just the kind of equivalent of saying, you know, mom, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Uh, Mom, I've got a cough. And she will then say, ah, I have something for that. If she is one of the majority of people who is illiterate. So like, let's remember that in medieval Europe, 80% of the population are peasants. These people haven't gone to school. They probably can't read and write, but they probably remember from their mom or from whoever else what you do for a sore throat. So, hey, I've got a sore throat. Maybe you're going to, boil up some herbs and make something that's like a cough syrup oh you've got a fever here's a poultice that you make to bring a fever down oh there's something like a headache okay you boil some willow bark and then you drink that and then that will take care of your headache A step up from that, the other people that you would actually see doing a lot of medical care are monks and nuns. And that is because monks and nuns um, in their monasteries and their nunneries usually have a big sort of empty dormitory. And the dormitory is used for all sorts of things. Sometimes the dormitory is just used for people who are on pilgrimage. Other thing that those uh, dormitories do is they take in sick people who it's uh, beyond control of whatever's going on in the household. So they get particularly Inundated. If you have, for example, a big fever sweeps through somewhere, or if you have something like particularly tricky to deal with, so say you've like really broken a leg very seriously, and you know your family are peasants, they've got to be out on the farm and they can't take care of you. Don't worry about it. The monks or the nuns, they'll look after you, so you can just kind of you know get dragged along, and they'll take care of everything for you. And now the monks and the nuns are practicing a slightly more complicated form of medicine there, which is sort of classical medicine, and that is because they've got libraries full of books that they're looking at all the time. And so they're going to have classical medicine. Then other than that, in terms of if we're talking about professional, because monks and nuns, technically, they're not professionals, right? You don't pay them for their services when you're uh, going into the hospital with them. You just kind of show up and it's their due diligence to look after you because that's what God wants. But professionally, the next level that you would think of really commonly are midwives. And midwives are women who look after gynecological complaints in particular, but also very specifically within that when babies are being born. So they're the person that you'll call when somebody is in labor because they deal very specifically with women's kind of complaints and uterine complaints. So, you know, anything from babies are being born to maybe you have some particular issues with your uterus, all the constellation of things that can go on there. That's who you'd call. A step up from that, you have the barber surgeons. And so what they kind of look after is anything that involves actual cutting. And that's because they're also practicing sort of classical medicine, like the monks and the nuns, and they're practicing more Galenic medicine. And what their thing is, is that they're looking at making sure that the four humors in the body are in balance. And so it's very important to uh, note here, a lot of the time when we think about uh, barber surgeons or we think about humors, we say, oh, that's a particularly medieval way of looking at medicine, and it's not, actually. It's classical. So you will find them doing this in ancient Athens. You'll find them doing this in ancient Rome. It's just that medieval people are still doing it. And in fact, this is the prevailing form of medicine up until basically the 19th century when we figure out germs. So, uh, you know, we can't really make fun of medieval people for it. But barbers specifically, what they're offering when they say they're going to get your humors back into alignment is they're saying, I will bleed you. <laughs> so... You really go to barbers if you have something that specifically involves having excess blood, and luckily that seems to be a lot of ailments. You know, if you've got a fever, they'll say, "Oh, you're kind of hot," and a blood is kind of thought to be one of the hot humors. So, although oh, that will bring that down, they also do things like dentistry. So, if you've got um, a tooth that needs to get removed, you're going to go to a barber surgeon for that. And then also, also there is even within barber surgeons there are what you and I would recognize more as actual surgeons. Medieval people were actually capable of doing pretty elaborate and complicated surgical procedures. So, for example, one thing that they were quite good at doing was taking care of fistulas. It can happen to the uterus, but also intestines kind of perforate through. And so things start getting where they shouldn't be getting in your body. And they could get in there and figure out a way of closing all those up and people lived. And we know that's true. So medieval surgery actually works pretty well. And we know, for example, in the Islamic world that they were doing surgery on eyes in the 12th century. You know, really complicated things were definitely possible within this. And then the final group of people are physicians. And physicians are what you and I would think of when we think of doctors. And these are people who have probably been to university or who have been to medical school. The most famous medical school and the first university in the medieval period is Salerno down in Italy, and it was established in the ninth century. And they will be trained up in all the classical Galenic medicine. They're gonna have lots of handbooks. And these are the people that you really are gonna have to pay the big money for. So most people are actually not going to have have the means to see a physician and that's sort of for quite wealthy people for nobles for kings they'll have physicians on their payroll and those are the people who are kind of like driving sort of inquiry in medicine but average people day-to-day aren't necessarily going to see a physician so when we think about medieval medical practice we have to remember that there's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things and they're doing it for different groups
0: Records relating to humble village medics can be found with increasing frequency the further into the period we get.
3: By the time you get to the 12th century and the 13th century, when the village documents become really detailed.
0: That's Professor Michael Wood, medieval historian, television presenter and author of The Story of England.
3: You can pick up these village doctors, you know, not the posh university educated doctors who attended the royal court or the bishops or the popes or stuff like that but ordinary folk at grassroots level and one document that uh, i came across we we did a series based in one village kibworth in near leicester which belonged to merton college as as a manor from the the 1260s onwards and there's a survey of the village in 1280 it lists the the free peasantry and the semi-free peasantry and and the entire population of the village and then it gets down to the you know the minor people on the fringes of village society alice the washerwoman and people like that you know the miller and and among them is a guy called robert who's designated medicus so this guy is effectively the village doctor. He must farm land, either for himself or for somebody else. But his sideline was as the village doctor. And when you look at 13th century England, of course, disease would be an ever-present factor for humans and animals and crossing over, you know, still a big sheep country. And therefore, doctors were really valued people in the local community. And this guy, interestingly enough, He'd been a bonded serf, one grade above slave, really. But he'd been freed by his master a few years earlier. And perhaps through his parents, and maybe through his mother, because women are great custodians of medical law, as you'd expect, as they have been right the way through to my grandparents, my grandma. Women were great custodians of of traditional law on basic medicine, basic healing and stuff like that. And so this guy, Robert, who'd been a serf, a bonded labourer had become an expert in country medicine and probably one would imagine doubled as the village vet as well so that's the kind of person I would imagine had been there in Anglo Saxon England as well it would be you know very unlikely that some of these big villages you see in the surveys with hundreds of people didn't have somebody who was a specialist in medicine
0: In East Asia, towards the very end of the period, we find the first female royal physician in Korean history, Jang Joem. In Europe, Italy appears to have been one of the most liberal places to be a woman and have an interest in medicine. We see female figures such as Dorothea Bucca, Rebecca di Guana and Calrici di Dorisio training as physicians, eye surgeons and writing important medical tracts. England was way behind in terms of allowing the formal training of women in medicine, but religion offered a way for some to engage in a more formalised way of offering medical care. It also afforded unique opportunities
4: for self-reflection. Well, the name Julian of Norwich can be a bit deceptive because it's now in modern terms, a male name, isn't it? Julian. That's Dr. Yanina
0: Ramirez, medieval historian, broadcaster and author of Julian of Norwich, A
4: Very Brief History. But we're actually talking about a woman and we're talking about a very important woman because she is the first woman to write a book in English. And she wrote a remarkable book called The Revelations of Divine Love, She was also alive during an incredibly important period because she was having her revelations around the year 1373. She was probably born in 1343. And the main part of her life coincides with a period of such change all over the world, but particularly in Britain, you've got the Black Death, you've got the schism, the papal schism, where there were two popes at the same time. You've got the Hundred Years' War with France, and also the beginning of Lollard Trials, where heretics are being burnt. So during her very long life, she probably lived to over the age of 70, Julian saw some of the most important historic events in medieval British history play out.
0: An anchoress was a woman who, for religious reasons, made the decision to withdraw from secular society. In Julian of Norwich's case, we believe this saw her live at least 30 years of her life in a single room, until she died.
4: You tend to think about the medieval world being split into three estates, which is the peasantry, people who actually do things, the nobility and aristocracy who defend people, that's their role. And then the spiritual, the monks, the nuns, the priests who are praying for the souls of the people. They're sort of fighting a spiritual battle. And the Anchoresses are part of that in as much as when they become part of the church, when they're walled up in this room that's next to a church, Their prayers are actually becoming part of the fabric of the community. They are fighting to defend the community against the devil, against demons. So they have that role to play. But nuns, on the other hand, did have another role, which was that they served the community in ways like providing medical care. So we can see monasteries. St. Bart's Hospital was first originally a monastery where, in their case, monks were providing medical care to people coming into the city of London. It's it's near to the gates of old London. And people could come in there and get quite a basic, what we would call today a basic medical support, particularly women who were giving birth. There would be midwifery. They would be kept in clean, healthy surroundings. They would be fed. And... To all intents and purposes, what monasteries and convents provided was a cut above what they would have got by just staying within their village, staying within their town they did develop herbs and remedies that could cure a number of ailments and still to this day are are seen as as good treatments for certain medical conditions. But they were also beginning, as we're going into the 14th and 15th century, to try and understand the workings of the body more. So, you know, Julian of Norwich is fascinating because she does talk about pregnancy. She She has this incredible approach to God, that God is mother and father. And a lot of the images she presents for God is that God is like a mother with us, his creation inside him, like we're in the womb, like we're in utero. And so her religious ideas are sort of being paralleled by medical treaties, medical texts that are exploring what happens to a baby when it grows inside the womb. You know, how does birth take place? What sort of safe measures can be put in place to ensure that fewer women die because childbirth was an incredibly dangerous process? Yeah, there is a sort of parallel between what we're left behind in literature in this beautiful kind of poetic prose that Julian wrote in her spiritual understanding and then what's happening in terms of medicine at this time as well.
0: One of the most valuable medical texts from this time is known as Bold's Leech Book.
3: Well, it's one of the most interesting manuscripts from British history, really. It's a handbook compiled by a doctor, probably in the time of Alfred the Great, although the manuscript itself is a copy written in about 950, you know, so about 50 years after Alfred's death. There are three parts, but the two key parts were compiled by a doctor called Bald, Bald. <laughs> and uh, they're a set of medical recipes. Uh, it's an amazing piece of work, drawing on learning of hundreds of years, going back to the Greeks and the Romans, but a lot of traditional medicine from the British Isles. It's organised in a really remarkable way. They, they deal with external ailments in the first part of the book. And they go from head to foot so you know eyes ears mouth throat and so on down to your knees and your joints and then internal uh, your bowels and your you know your gut and all that sort of stuff in the second part of it and there's all sorts of questions about you know when was it originally compiled it draws on earlier learning and there are references in the book to recipes that came from the patriarch of jerusalem Elias sending them to King Alfred himself so it may be that the the original compilation of the book was during the like the 890s when Alfred the great was doing a lot of translation projects gathering learning together codifying things in the period when a lot of monastic libraries had been destroyed by the vikings but it's a practical manual that belonged originally to a doctor it actually has a, an inscription at uh, the end, saying um, this book belongs, as it were, to Bald, the, the doctor, and uh, he ordered somebody else called Chilled to copy it. And the other thing I would add about it is he does cite one or two earlier doctors, interestingly enough, um, both of whom have Anglo-Saxon names, English names, Oxa and Dun, and uh, they are cited for this, as the source of one or two of the recipes in the book. So it's an amazing piece of work really Uh, you know somebody's gathered together in Viking Age England the learning on medicine going back hundreds of years.
0: Tantalisingly there does appear to be evidence that some of the recipes did in fact work.
3: I mean there's so many interesting references into it There's, there's one for the the fecus, which is like a flow of you know some for somebody who's got problems with their intestines, some kind of serious problem with their intestines, and it's that that one has been it's been speculated this recipe came from uh, Jerusalem, and it has been speculated that Alfred the Great himself suffered from a we we know he suffered from a serious bowel complaint through his adult life, and it's been suggested that he had Crohn's disease. And this recipe was specifically to alleviate that. But as for whether any of these work, there's been some amazing research recently by scholars of both Old English and, and uh, Medicine and Science at Nottingham University, and which was published in the magazine New Scientist. One of the recipes is an ointment for treating styes in the eye And it talks about pounding together garlics, the heart of leeks with a bit of wine and bile from a cow's stomach. And the mix is left to stand in a brass bowl for nine days. And that doesn't sound very nice at all, does it? But this was tested recently and it had antibiotic properties. In fact, the brass bulb adds to the killing of bacteria. But it killed 90% of particular forms of bacteria for MRSA, you know, the hospital superbug. And some of the things, some of the elements in it, for instance, I didn't know until I kind of looked this up, is that bullock's gall is still used, cow's bile as it were, in salt form. It's still sold to people who have got their gallbladders removed, you know. So there's no doubt
2: that some of these actually work.
0: Looking at the period as a whole, there were a number of
2: important innovations during this time so for example a bone setting that's something that we know a lot about because it hasn't actually changed very much at all like that was one of those things that we had down in the medieval period so you know you're going to see stuff like splinting you will see uh, casts that sort of thing you know obviously they're not using exactly the same materials that we use now but you know you would bind people's legs up so they couldn't move them and you would put a splint in there and that sort of thing so that's something that we definitely um, know existed for surgeries it's sort of the same thing so surgery in the medieval period is not necessarily unlike earlier surgery um, in the modern period it is fairly gruesome you know we don't have a way of at this point necessarily sterilizing things because there's no concept of germs yet and you don't really have any way of knocking anyone out so people are kind of awake which makes you wonder when you (laughs) read uh, surgical tasks about uh, fixing someone's fistula and you're like oh and they're awake for it huh How about that? But we know that they were able to do that and survive. And that's probably because we do know that they had some fairly effective pain management. So they know about stuff like, for example, opiates, opium is a really uh, common form of pain control for big things like surgery. So, you know, we still use effectively the same ingredients for uh, pain relief now for really big things. So they had access to things like that. I mean, for lower level pain, it would be things like, so for example, what makes aspirin? is just an extract from willow bark and uh, medieval people knew about that and they would gather willow bark and boil it and you know you kind of drink the residue from that and then there you go hey uh, your headache is better so we definitely know that there are forms of pain relief that would have worked but the people who are undergoing things like surgery you really do have to wonder about the fortitude of the patients not just the surgeons so one of the things that's quite interesting about medieval medical practice with these practical things is just what you as a should have to put up with and the kind of generalized bravery of everyone involved.
0: Perhaps one of the most powerful images we have from the medieval period is that of leprosy. How did societies deal with the visibly and chronically sick?
2: Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that we actually think about lepers so often when we think about uh, medieval Europe is because of leprosariums or um, lazar houses, as they're also called. And that's because it's kind of like the really popular thing for rich people to do to prove that they are quite holy. So one of the things that rich people want to do, if they've got a lot of money to splash about and they want to show that they've done something good for their community, one of the big things that they will do is they will establish a leprosarium. that a place where people who have leprosy can go live. Now, the thing about leprosy is we're we're doing pretty good on it now, but uh, for the most part, it's a sort of bacterial condition. And one of the things that it does is it's a kind of autoimmune disorder. It weakens your immune system generally. So when we kind of think about leprosy, we think about all these horrible things like uh, losing limbs or, you know, losing your nose, this sort of a thing. And that's not actually leprosy that does that. It's the fact that your body's immune system is so weakened that it can't fight off other infections. So leprosy is kind of like the condition that allows for you to lose a limb. And now it's really interesting because we used to sort of think of the Lazar houses as this way of segregating uh, lepers from society and saying, oh, well, they're so gross um, and disgusting that we don't want them in the actual city. But now we've kind of changed our minds about that a little bit. And we think that one of the reasons that leprosariums were set up where they were, which is outside of cities on big roads, and one of the reasons why they would be there is because when rich see set up these leprosariums, they want you to know that they did it. So it's not necessarily just a way of segregating uh, lepers from the rest of society. It's a way of broadcasting the fact that you've done something good and making sure everybody knows your name and they know what you're doing. Having said that, people were still real jerks to lepers. It's one of these things where uh, there's a real conception uh, for medieval people of health uh, being a natural state that is also tied to divineness. The holier you are, the healthier you are is a kind of way of thinking about things. So the closer you are to God, then the healthier your body is going to be because that's how natural you are. Because when we were all, before the fall of Adam and Eve, when we lived in uh, the Garden of Eden, we were perfectly healthy and there was no way to get sick. And it's through sin that we started getting sick, right? So if you are really sick, then it kind of stands to reason that you're maybe a bit of a sinner. Something like leprosy, one of the things that they'll say about lepers is they'll be like, oh, well, they start a lot of fights. Oh, they are kind of lecherous and they're very, Lustful, and that's why they have leprosy. You know, uh, they're very gluttonous; they eat too much, and that's why they have leprosy. So, even though there are these places that are put aside in society to make sure that lepers have somewhere to live and they're able to make enough money to survive through begging, so we know one of the things that they would have even is uh, you would sort of have a bell when you were a leper. And at first, we used to think that it was to warn people lepers were coming, and now we know that what we're doing is actually attracting attention: is that a leper is coming? So come, give me. So there's this real tension about the way that we relate to lepers and they take up a lot of kind of popular imagination and a lot of thought.
4: This is because it was already understood many, many, many centuries ago, but particularly during the medieval period, that leprosy was contagious and lepers did have to be kept apart from society. Monks were the go-betweens. So often there would be elected members of the community that would deal with a leper's colony. They would take them their food, they would say prayers for them, they would keep them receiving the Christian sacraments because they were still seen as part of Christendom. They weren't given up on, they were looked after. And what we often see is previous leper colonies that are often on islands or give the impression of being on islands. They might be surrounded by a fen or by woodlands. Later, those leper colonies, once they've ceased to to serve their role protecting lepers, become monasteries. Monks actually move into those isolated places. And there's a sort of camaraderie between nuns, monks, and lepers because all of them are trying to achieve a deeper health, spiritual health, and in in the case of lepers, physical health, through separating themselves from society. They take themselves away. In a way, they're coming together to be alone. That's the monastic ideal. But they're having to avoid all the temptations of of (laughs) regular society in their search for spiritual and physical health. So it's another string to the monastic bow, if you like, that monasteries are the origins of our schools, our universities, our libraries, but also our hospitals and our care system. They were the ones that provided that when the state really didn't. As we discovered at the beginning of the
0: episode, Sick to Death has a number of skeletal remains from this period, believed to have belonged to nuns. Indeed, the archaeological record can enable a unique glimpse into the everyday lives of those living and working during this time that may not necessarily be apparent from written records.
4: One of the most vivid experiences I've had making a documentary was going into the Museum of London and having the skeleton of a regular parishioner, a young man, died around 25, died of all the sorts of ailments and ills that the people of London were suffering from. And alongside that, one of the monks from Blackfriars And the density of their bones showed that one had rickets, one was malnourished, the other was in wonderfully fine health, except that they had this dripping effect on their bones, which was a side effect of extreme obesity. So we were looking at the bones of a fat monk. And it really played up the sort of injustices of the monastic system as it was coming to its its sort of zenith and decline, that these became kind of hotbeds of luxury and indulgence. And yeah, they would eat two loaves of bread a day. They would eat up to 10 eggs each a day, ridiculous quantities of ale and 10 ounces of steak. I mean that's too much by anyone's standards. But yes, they were they were eating well the monks towards the end of the medieval period. Looking
0: at the period as a whole, there were a number of important innovations during this time.
2: The big innovations that we really see come from the Islamic world. So um, we have some really big players in the game. One of them we say in the Latinized form, we'll say his name is Avicenna, but Ibu Sina is one of them. And he's the guy who's like really pioneering a lot of surgical techniques and surgical techniques in particular.
5: His canon of medicine would become the world's most important medical textbook for over half a millennium.
0: That's Shafi Musadik, journalist with a special interest in medieval Andalusia.
5: That's an extraordinary shelf life for any text. He synthesised all the Greek, Persian, Indian medicinal knowledge, as well as his own commentary. He discovered some contagious diseases and he detailed the human eye. He also details bone fractures and he goes on to talk about delaying splintage by suggesting fractures should not be splinted immediately but only after several days. And this idea is pretty much respected today in medicine.
2: So it's interesting because a lot of the time when we think about, for example, medieval medicine as opposed to modern medicine, we'll say, oh, one of the things that holds them back is, for example, an interest in uh, Galenic medicine, and it's true. But Avicenna is really able to kind of hold these two things at the same time. So like, he kind of believes in Galenic theory, and it is belief, like (laughs) you can call it that. But at the same time, he's really kind of uh, noticing things. He's writing things down. He does more things through actually observing and saying, OK, well, I did this and it worked. So you start seeing for a lot of medieval medical practitioners, more things come up where it's not just, for example, saying an authority told me this. So that's kind of a bigger for earlier medieval practice. And for Roman and Greek medicine, you'll see a lot of things like, oh, well, you know, this is the poultice for fever that's been handed down through years. You start to see more and more in the medieval period, not just from Ephesina, but from even just like home uh, manuals and that sort of thing, you'll see more people say, this has worked. I learned this recipe from this person who said it worked. So it's not just kind of saying, oh, well, uh, someone told me it worked. It's I know it from someone. This has definitively worked. This worked for me. And you start seeing more actual references to having a tried and true method, uh, not just taking it on someone's word. So that's one big thing that we see over the medieval period. And things get increasingly more technical as well. So sure they've got um, eye surgery in the 12th century in the Muslim world, and that eventually gets into the European world uh, through Spain. So one of the big things that you see, interestingly, is a real interest and back and forth in terms of sending medical texts from various places and various cultures. So I'll um, Although we tend to think of, for example, Christians and Muslims as being opposed to each other because of, you know, stuff like the Crusades. If for From a medical standpoint, there's a lot more willingness to collaborate and there's a real interest in sharing other people's knowledge. So you see a lot of back and forth there. So especially in places like Spain, where you have Christians and Muslims living alongside each other, you see a lot more texts being translated back and forth. And then even in places where you don't have Muslims, people will say, oh yeah, well, can you send down to Spain for that? Because I, I've heard that they got and everybody kind of knows so that that's what you want
5: so for over 700 years the international language of medicine and science was arabic it was a lingua franca and the reason why it was was because of the expansion of the islamic empire and that sparked a huge translation movement of greek texts into arabic and that began in kind of the 8th century in persia And that thread between Persia and the Western outpost in Spain, which was then under Islamic rule, really helped a movement of books and ideas, almost a literal movement. It's through Spain that so much Arabic medicine and science reached Europe. Baghdad had been the centre of a thriving translation movement, and cities in Seville and Toledo in Spain became the centres of translation of great Arabic texts into Latin. The reason why the translation movement in Spain transcended religious boundaries was that a large number of translators were Christian and Jews. They They were working side by side with their Muslim counterparts and a lot of them also worked side by side, literally on the bones and the bodies of their Muslim rulers. It was in medicine that Andalusia would display its early bloom of intellectual curiosity and eventual leadership in the Western world. Many of Spain's top scholars travelled to Baghdad during the mid-10th century to learn from top physicians like al-Razi and to study from the great Arabic translations of Galen. Among these physicians were, so for example, one of them is called Abu al-Kasim al-Zahrawi, or in Latin he was otherwise called Abulcasis. His contributions were absolutely remarkable. He invented some surgical instruments that are still in use today. For example, the forceps used in childbirth. He introduced the surgical hook, the spoon speculum speculum, the bone saw. he introduced needles and syringes. But perhaps his most interesting invention was that he pioneered the use of inhalant anaesthesia. And those kind of anaesthetics were essentially sponges soaked in a concoction of narcotics that included cannabis kind of and opium. Pretty strong stuff. And his books were written in the year 1000. They would have a huge impact on Europe.
2: So, you get to see a lot of really interesting stuff like that. And also, you see really good trading lines in terms of uh, medicines and medicaments. You know, uh, spices and things that are coming in through the East. That's kind of where we get the idea for opium is coming from the East and that kind of a thing. So, you see medicines flowing around a lot more. You see more and better surgery. And you see overall more emphasis on observation as the period goes on.
3: I mean, going back to our dear old Anglo Saxon Dr. Bold, one of the most incredible things about the book is even in the, the ninth century, they attempted surgery on, on, on certain disfiguring afflictions. You know, there is actually a description of how, how you can improve the look of somebody who has a cleft lip and palate and help them eat better and look better. You know, the idea that even in the Viking age, they were prepared to attempt surgery on something like that. Is amazing, isn't it? I mean, we think of it. You know, people used to call it the Dark Ages, but when you actually think about these manuscripts and the the extraordinary range of medical material that is they're drawing on to to make these compilations, the seriousness with which they apply themselves and the generally rational and scientific approach. I, I don't know whether how many of these recipes have been tested, but as I say, the eye salve can fight the superbug. And they very, very seldom use what we would call the irrational kind of medicine. In other words, uh, you know, incantation magic or prayers or stuff like that. And and often that's when there's nothing they can do. And even that can be helpful, as we know today in our medicine, you know. I mean, I take my hat off to bold.
0: (laughs) And the advent of a new disease, known to history as the Black Death, tested the limits of medieval medicine and found it wanting. This will be explored in the next episode. With thanks to today's guests, Dr. Yanina Ramirez, Professor Michael Wood, Dr. Eleanor Yarniger, Shafi Musadiq, This series was written, narrated and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and it was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.